Welcome to the Glindbourne podcast. I'm Peggy Reynolds, and in this podcast I'll be exploring the themes and images in Verdi's Falstaff, which is being performed as part of the 2013 Glindbourne Festival. Verdi's Falstaff is virtually unique in the operatic repertoire. It's the culminating statement from a composer who was then the grand old man of opera. It's a comedy with a serious turn, and it's one of the most varied and sparkling scores around. Verdi is probably my favourite composer, and I've adored Falstaff because it was one of the first operas of his that I ever heard. And I was amazed at the humanity in the music the delicacy, the sense of fun, and how the harmony in this music portrays so much of the wit and beauty and romance of this lovely comedy. Throughout Falstaff, Verdi is demonstrating his life's work. He's demonstrating how he has developed over his 50-year career, um, how he's stuck with the basic Italian opera matrix as opposed to going Wagnerian but that he has pushed the envelope so far so as to create a kind of Italian opera that is every bit as progressive as German opera is, but still true to its roots. So form completely yields in later Verdi and and most of all in Falstaff to expressive needs. He's pushed form as far as it can possibly go. It's very touching that this opera is one that comes most often in any opera singer or conductor's top five. And um, in that case, uh, statistics are not lying. It's just uh, really one of the most extraordinary opera I've ever written. I feel incredibly privileged to to sing it again and uh, still wonder if the people who choose me are mistaken, but uh, still I thank them for that. Laurent Nawari, who sings the part of Falstaff, and before that, Corey Ellison, Glyndebourne's dramaturg, and the conductor, Sir Mark Elder. Everyone knows Falstaff, the jolly Sir John who roisters through the taverns of England with the young Prince Hal in Shakespeare's Henry IV plays, and who fancies he can seduce all the ladies in The Merry Wives of Windsor. He is greedy and unscrupulous, he is a coward and a liar, but his lust for life makes him a lovable villain. And how do we recognise him? Because he is big and he takes up a lot of space. In a way, when people think of Falstaff, it's, it's all about the bulk. It's all about this mass of flesh. It appears to me there are several ways of being fat. And the way I feel Falstaff is fat is a case of someone building a sort of flesh fortress around a highly hypersensitive personality. And um, it's a sort of um, thin man who's grown fat. In a way, my first inspiration when learning the part was uh, the very person of Orson Welles. Not only that he played Falstaff in Chimes of Midnight, but the fact that he was a a very handsome young man who turned into that sort of um, obese caricature. 
maybe because he was far too intelligent and sensitive to take the blows of life. And so, in a way, when you're behind that sort of wall of flesh, you feel that um, it's a sort of, of a protection and that whatever happens, if you fall, you won't hurt yourself too much. As Laurent Nowery sings the part of Falstaff, he sees how Verdi has written music for him that signals both the roundness, the bulk, and the curious bravery of the man. One of the wonderful things about the way this character is written, it's, I think, the role with the highest percentage of all sounds. It's all about buona signora. E la voce è più rotonda. The voice is rounder because the character is rounder. And really you can feel that Boito writes the part of Falstaff with as much as possible using the sound Oh, you know, everything that's round, the way Falstaff is, is round himself. So you have to look for that color. Verdi was nearly 80 when he wrote Falstaff, and he seems to have had some feeling that this work was to mark the end of his creative life. But his musical inventiveness was still going strong, and his close relationship with his librettist Arrigo Boito meant that together they produced a masterpiece. The conductor, Sir Mark Elder. He was really at the end of his life when he agreed to write this opera, and he wrote it for his own amusement, to give him something to do, and because he admired the libretto, his relationship with Boito, the librettist, was a very interesting and unusual one because they'd started off as antagonists, both from different generations, very different backgrounds. Boito was very urbane, part of a new, young literary set called La Scapigliatura. And Verdi, of course, was this famous old bear who lived down in the country in Buceto near Parma. Difficult man to get through to, very loyal, could be grumpy very critical and intolerant of the way theatres were managed and opera performances were prepared. So it was a difficult joining together of these two men, and they did wonderful things before Falstaff, of course, Otello and the revision of Boccanegra. But in Falstaff, Verdi was so delighted that their joint respect and affection for Shakespeare could find another outlet. Across the 19th century, Shakespeare had become the icon we recognise today. In Britain, he was the emblem of national pride. His birthplace was saved for the nation. The Shakespeare Memorial Theatre was built in Stratford-upon-Avon. In Europe, Shakespeare's plays were widely admired and came to be adapted by many composers. Verdi had already used Shakespeare's Macbeth and Othello. But it was the stories of the elderly Sir John that attracted the composer now. Mark Elder. The action of Falstaff comes from the comedy The Merry Wives of Windsor, which is not one of Shakespeare's greatest achievements and was, as we understand it, written rather to order. Queen Elizabeth I said she wanted to see Sir John Falstaff in love, and so this comedy was quickly put together. Boito was very canny, wily, and he realised that Verdi needed to be given deeper material than that farce with its huge range of characters would give him. And so he read very attentively the two history plays, Henry IV, part one and part two. And Falstaff is a much 
richer, more detailed, drawn character in those history plays than he is in The Merry Wives, where it seems to be a little superficial. And there are those who, like Mark Elder, even go so far as to feel that Verdi and Boito's Falstaff is a work that actually surpasses its original sources. Boito handed him a text that was written to be set to music. Boito was a very unusual man. He was a man of letters, a man of great culture, sophistication, and he was also a composer. And he knew what a composer needed to write the right sort of piece. So he conceived the scenes with a particular musical pace underneath them. And he and Verdi talked about this and how each scene would work. And I think both of them realised that timing and speed of delivery and clarity of action were essential for a farcical comedy. Um, Of course, it has its lyric moments, but even in those lyric moments, in the first two acts, Verdi doesn't let the pace sag. The beauty of those romantic moments keeps going in the tempo of the whole scene. And the result is that you listen to a jewel that glitters all the time, the light dancing off it. If you like, it's like that wonderful moment when you're on a reef and you put your head underneath the water and you see the life that you can't see until your head's under the water, underneath the sea, all the colours of the coral, all the different fishes. Falstaff, as an experience to listen to, feels like that. Animals darting all over the place, colours changing, the wind waving things in the air. And he does this by his skill in writing for the voices, but also in in the orchestra. And the wit of the words is coloured and commented on by the orchestra, in a way that is more elaborate than anything he'd written before Otello. And to me, this comes directly from his work with Boito. It's not because he wanted to write that sort of piece. It's that piece came out of him because of the libretto that he received and he admired. And he allowed himself to go down that particular avenue. In Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor, Falstaff, in his role of would-be seducer, is humiliated three times by the machinations of Mistress Ford and Mistress Quickly. But Verdi and Boito paired the action right back for the purposes of the opera. It begins, as Glyndebourne's dramaturg Corey Ellison explains, right away, plunging us straight into the story. Falstaff is an opera that ends before it begins. It is one of the fastest-paced, most quicksilver operas of the entire repertory, absolutely brilliantly constructed, and it moves at the pace of real life. It moves in real time, not in opera time. There's no overture, there's no prologue of any kind. The curtain's up and we are in the action. There we are in the Garter Inn and Falstaff's quarters and Dr. Caius is complaining to him and we're getting to know the main character right away. And the action just keeps proceeding a pace like that. Its pace comes from a feeling of each scene, and there are six scenes, two in each act. Each scene needs to have its own thrust, its own course, that whatever happens within it, it's one piece of music. 
And that, of course, makes it very hard for the, the performers, the conductors and the singers, to get it right. You have to be very courageous and brave and daring. You have to have a word inside your heart that we don't have in English. You have to understand the Italian verb slanciare. The Germans or the Viennese would call it schwung. The French would call it elan. We don't have a word for it. Hurling yourself at it without caring what would happen is about as close as we can get. An example of, in the opera, where this brilliance and light, fleet music, which is such a hallmark of this comedy, is at its finest, is the beginning of the second scene of the first act, when we first meet all the Merry Wives when we meet this little group of ladies, different backgrounds, different characters, but united by the music. The music has a fleetness about it, a sparkle, a giggle. There's a sense of laughter behind it all the time, which is lovely because the scene that they play for us is to tell each other that they've just had a surprising letter of love and affection and devotion from Sir John Falstaff. And when they find that, that each other have had the, this, the same letter. The sense of explosive outrage and shock and horror, alongside a little flattery, I expect as well, a little pleasure, is really wonderfully caught in the music. The music is changeable. It doesn't stick with the same pulse. As they read the letter, the orchestration is different and the low notes of the clarinet boom out as if you could imagine a face being expressed, a grimace. But at the beginning of the scene, the woodwind chatter away and the strings lightly point up like, like little tufts of snuff point up the words. And the singers have to sing with fantastic precision. Their tempo has to be exactly the same as the orchestra's so that the whole thing is like a gorgeous souffle that's rising. In Act One, Scene Two, where we meet the uh, four female protagonists, Alice Ford, Meg Page, Mistress Quickly, and Nanetta, the daughter of Alice Ford, and they've just received these identical letters from Sir John Falstaff, who thinks of himself as some kind of a Don Juan, They're, the four outraged women are they get very, very excited, and they all start talking at the same time. Now, this is what makes opera opera. This is what Verdi understood. In no other form of theater can you, can you really do that. You have four women excitedly chattering away at the same time, different texts, and it is the most absolutely realistic depiction of overexcited women gossiping. It, it's absolutely intricate, really hard to sing, but it's just unparalleled. Oh, <laughs> 
We don't really think of Verdi as a composer of comedies. Indeed, he only wrote one other. But Falstaff is a very special kind of comedy, switching often into serious mode, even, as Mark Elder explains, with the actions of the fat knight himself. The point of the comedy is to present Falstaff as a seducer, as a man well past his shelf life, one could say, of enormous girth, but a man who believes that he can attract women. And he, of course, in this comedy, he doesn't understand that the women know that he's written to both of them in exactly the same language, and they're so annoyed and so outraged that they're both married and that he should question their virtue. So they set a little plot for him. And one of them, Alice Ford, Mistress Ford, is waiting for him to come and woo her in her house while her husband's out. And in he comes, dressed up to the nines, over flamboyantly. And she's gently playing on the lute, appearing to amuse herself in a, a strange little ditty, which he adds the words and the melody to, as if he's improvising, as if he's quoting some other song that he remembered. And she plays. Oh, she's surprised that he's there. And he takes the instrument from her and sings a few bars of how important this is at last to be with her alone. And he says, now I could die happy. I could say that I have really lived after this hour of blessed happiness. She says, oh, Sir John, you are a one. And he says, my beautiful Alice. And he does it with a genuine sincerity because of the way Verdi has written the music underneath those few remarks. The harmony underneath, oh, I could really say I have lived after this blessed hour, is one of the features of Verdi's late music that is so special and quite unlike anybody else. And it came gradually through his music. Gradually, the harmony in Verdi's music becomes more personal, slightly more chromatic, but it has a, a richness and a beauty to it, a mellow quality that is so beautiful. And for that little moment, we are touched by Falstaff, and we don't think, you're an old rascal. We think, this is a man who means what he says. And perhaps actually he's a better seducer than we think he is. But it's short-lived and the comedy soon comes back. Verdi's Falstaff is one of the strangest and most mysterious of operas. It's about a selfish rascal, and yet we come out of the theatre renewed and optimistic. It's a comedy, and yet it is a deeply serious meditation on the beauty and pain of human life. Mark Elder talks us through the final act where all these contradictions come together. The sixth and final scene of Falstaff takes place in the middle of Windsor Park. And we know it's in the night time, and we know we're not going to be disturbed because it's, it's closed. And we know it's closed because the scene begins with the distant sound of the horn that is the guardsman of the park announcing by the sound of his horn that he's going to close. This is a lovely detail of Verdi's to have imagined this, and he specially asked for an original corno di caccia, a hunting horn, in a very unusual key of A-flat. And 
Verdi said, this is exactly what I want. He wanted the scene to start in this key. It suggests that night is falling and that the park is becoming an empty, still place in which magic might happen. And this is further brought on by the young lover, Fenton, hoping to have yet another secret moment with his beloved Nanetta, hoping that one day their marriage will be allowed. And he comes and sings this beautiful sonnet, which is such a lovely Shakespearean idea of Boito. And the, the music for that sonnet is so carefully written, it's so gentle, it's not at all heroic and barnstorming. It's poetic, it's very romantic, it's so beautiful and very likely accompanied by the orchestra. All this is a preparation for what is to come. As night descends and the idea of surrounding Falstaff with fairies and with a whole ghostly world of, of the unseen, as it were, Verdi has to, to really find a different sort of music. And once the chattering of the Merry Wives as they organise the events has happened and Falstaff's arrived, we hear midnight striking. It's another way to, to say, now we're alone in the middle of this forest. harmony for these 12 strokes of midnight is so beautiful and this is something that goes beyond the requirements of a composer. Normally in his operas Verdi would have the, the bells sounded without any harmonization, without any comment as it were from the orchestra. They would just be like a sound effect. But he wrote this for his own pleasure and he harmonized these 12 bell notes so tenderly as if it was just Verdi saying to us just listen to how beautiful a bell can be. But of course, Falstaff himself is listening, wearing his antlers and looking rather ridiculous because he knows that at 12 o'clock he might have yet another romantic assignation. So Verdi is gradually pulling us down into a different world. And he gets there with the arrival of all the young children dressed as fairies and imps. And Nanetta, as the queen of the fairies, sings this magical aria, which after all these years of loving it and conducting it and listening to it, it still makes me cry.
Out of the darkness of the forest, the fairies appear, pinching and nipping at Falstaff in his guise of Hearn the Hunter. Then they reveal themselves as his true tormentors, Mistress Ford, Mistress Page, their husbands and all the townspeople of Windsor. The foolish knight is tricked and humiliated. But he's not the only one. In all the confusion, Nanetta and Fenton have been secretly betrothed and Ford reluctantly acknowledges their union. Everyone has been deceived. Tutto nel mondo è berla, sings Falstaff. All the world is a joke. And everyone joins in the final joyful chorus. Tutto nel mondo è burla, no. In this final scene, we find all kinds of strict forms, as if Verdi is summing up for us where he came from. So we get two of the only full-blown arias that you find in Falstaff of them. And then, of course, you get the famous final fugue. And it's as if Verdi is, is saying, this is where I came from. And of course, one of the most remarkable things about Falstaff is that this 80-year-old man, after writing 26 gloomy operas and two comic operas, he's ending his entire career with the statement, tout le monde est burla, all of the world is a joke. <laughs> and we are jokers. We're fools. So this is the final statement that he leaves us with after all of this very, very serious work and this sparkling fugue. And of course, a fugue, the most learned form of Western music you can muster. And he's probably on some level saying to the Germans, see, an Italian can still write a fugue, so there. My feeling is that the idea of writing a fugue at the end was a way of, in a very democratic way, of all the characters being subject to Verdi's genius and Verdi's skill and making a little moral, a little tag, an adage, if you like, at the end of the opera to make a real finale because the action until that point wasn't adequate to do that. One needs some celebration. So he invented this wonderful thing, Tutto nel mondo e burla, to show the spirit behind this comedy. And that he says, anyway, we're all deceived. The whole thing is a joke and we shouldn't take it all too seriously. Well, anybody who knows anything about Verdi knows very well that he took life incredibly seriously. And what makes him such a great composer to me is his ability in all his operas to find moments of touching humanity where the notes that he writes for the orchestra, as he used to say, oh, I just write a little music. But in doing that, he writes something memorable that goes beyond the text sometimes and gives it a humanity, an understanding of human nature that touches our hearts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 